Thank you, God, for the opportunity to come to this sacred place and stand one more time this side of eternity and deliver the message the Lord has sent. I ask you to move upon us today, O God, by the anointing of the Holy Spirit and help us, God, to enter into that holy place. May we, with sensitive ears, hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. Now, I ask, O God, that every heart in this house will be submitted to you at this moment and that all of our attention, our focus would be upon what your word says and how you can minister to us and touch us so that we will leave here blessed and inspired and encouraged. Through Jesus, our Savior, amen. And amen. Turn with me to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is uh, one of those very famous psalms. It is about a man who wrestles with his feet, and his heart. His heart is telling him one thing and his feet won't listen. When we talk about feet, we talk about walking. And our experience with the Lord is called a walk. Walk by faith, not by sight. And walk in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We're always admonished to walk And uh, that great spiritual says, order my steps. The Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. So to walk right, you got to have feet that are uh, strong and functional, spiritual feet that, that walk the walk. It's one thing to know it in your heart, know it in your head, and to walk it out in your behavior and your conversation, and your worship is a totally different thing. Sometimes they get in contradiction. Sometimes life just drops a bomb, yeah? Sometimes life, just living this life, can just wear on you and get to a place that you're disconsolate and become despondent. This writer, Asaph, who wrote 12 of the uh, Psalms, this is the first of them, there's some question as to whether Asaph was the author or the person to whom they were dedicated we find in 2 Chronicles that Hezekiah commanded the Levites to sing the words of David and of Asaph the seer. So in Nehemiah 12 and 46, David and Asaph are mentioned together as distinct from the chief of singers. So it would seem that they joint together wrote some of these psalms and even uh, described it. Whatever that case may be, the theme is uh, consistent. And there's a stumbling block for all Christians. I'll identify it for you in just a minute. And it happens to every one of us. And every one of us seem to be easy prey for that. And that is comparing ourselves to someone else. And when someone else is blessed, we say, why not me? When we see other people that fare well, especially non-Christians and unbelievers, and they have good fortune and they just live in the best of houses, seem to have perpetual good health and everything comes easy for them, sometimes we say, well, why do I have it so hard? I believe in God. I trust God. I go to church. I sing in the praise team. I play instruments. I give my tithe. I teach a Sunday school class. Why is it so difficult for me, a believer, and so easy for someone else who is not a believer? And sometimes we get to looking at those things and we kind of get disconsolate and become despondent. This first verse of the 
73rd uh, Psalm says, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. Now this is a churchgoer, so he knows the slogans to say. If pastor says God is good, he'll come back with all the time. And if pastor says and his people are, he'll come back with blessed and highly favored because he's a churchgoer. He knows the slogans. He knows what to say. He knows the heritage. He knows the tradition. He knows how to act in the house of God. God is good. He's been educated to that. He's been experienced in that. It not only is something he recites in church when the pastor calls for it, it's something he knows in his heart. And if you were to ask him, Asaph, has God been good to you? He'd say, of course he has. He's been really good to me. I think everybody in this house would say that today. God's been good to me. Amen. And he says, all they that are of a clean heart. And the next word he says, but as for me. Wow. He's actually saying that God's people and people who are of a right attitude and have great faith, they're of a clean heart. But he said, but as for me. He kind of puts himself at uh, a distinction from those people that are of a clean heart. He's saying, but as for me. I, I may not be in that number that's always on top. I, I may not be in that number that quotes the verses just exactly right. I, I may not be in that number that, that always believes and has faith. And I may not be in that number that always says the right thing and testifies right and uh, sings right. I may not be... Uh, a person that can say, my heart is totally clean. I may not be that way. But as for me, he says, but as for me, every one of us in this house have to say that, that thing because I can't be responsible for anyone else in this place but me. I can't bear anybody's burden of salvation but my own. If I could, wow. Michelle, I'd save everybody if I could do it. If it was up to me, I'd just wave my hand and we'd just all get saved and that'd be the end of it. But it's not up to me. I can't get saved for somebody else. Every man, the Bible said, must bear his own burden when it comes to salvation. So I can't, in the areas of faith, be faithful for you. I can't answer those spiritual questions for you. He said, Every one of us have to say, but as for me. Because every one of us is responsible for our own spiritual condition. And this man is a, a, a man that compares himself to they that are of a clean heart. And he said, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. My feet were almost gone and my steps had well nigh slipped. I've learned a long time ago that uh, what you see is basically determined by where you stand. If you're standing in the right place, you're apt to see right thing. If you're standing wrong, you might be seeing wrong. Come on, somebody. If you're kind of at a disadvantage in your view, 
you might not get the whole truth of the matter, you see. So it is imperative that we let the Lord order our steps because where we stand is going to determine what kind of attitude we're going to have because our, what we see is what's going to get in our mind and in our heart, in our soul, in our spirit, and it's going to determine then what our flesh does with that. The psalmist declares his confidence in God when he says, God is good. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. I remember Brother Jolly used to testify, and he would, he'd make that statement. He'd say, I want to tell you right now, he said, I, old, old Slewfoot has wrestled me all over that rock, but he never has got me off of that rock. In other words, sometimes... That rock is solid. It's always solid, but sometimes our feet are slippery. Sometimes we have slippery feet. Sometimes that substance of doubt and worry and frustration and anxiety and all of that stuff tends to make our feet slippery. And we have a tough time standing on that solid rock. That rock that he said, I'll build my church upon. That rock that is so safe and so secure that nothing can move it. And we are built upon the spiritual house, upon that rock that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. That profession of faith, lack of faith and doubt, failing to trust, is the root of our despondency. You know, when we don't really have faith in God like we should, or we don't trust Him like we should, sometimes that causes despondency in all of us. And the root of that is always found in disbelief or unfaithfulness or failure to believe. Verse 4 said, For I was envious of the foolish. Now, foolish here is a general term that is used for unconverted people or people that are not the people of God. Well, I understand that you kind of live, but why would you be envious of someone who is foolish? If you know that wisdom is to love God and trust God and read Solomon and find out what wisdom is and pray and ask God for wisdom because if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of the Lord and if you know wisdom, then why in the world would you lack wisdom to the fact that you would envy someone who is foolish? Why would the wise ever envy someone who is foolish? Possibly because a carnal spirit is prevailing at the time? Because the only reason that I would envy someone as foolish is that they're doing better than me. And if they're doing better than me, why should I envy them when the Lord calls them foolish and causes me, calls me wise? And then he says to me, why would a wise person who has Jesus, who has a home in heaven, who has his name in the Lamb's book of life, who has the Spirit of the Lord living inside them, why would that person ever be envious of someone who is foolish? 
Well, have you seen that old rusted out Subaru that I drive? Pastor, and that cussing, drinking, cheating neighbor of mine sitting there with that brand new Denali truck in his driveway hollered over the fence just the other day and told me he just got a 30% raise at work. Why would ever I be envious of someone who's foolish? Here's what Asaph said. I was envious of the foolish person. I became envious of him when I saw his prosperity. Are you looking at that? The prosperity of the wicked made me envy a foolish person. Wow. I really had a problem with God and my faith and my standing in Christ when I saw how rich that unbelieving neighbor was and what a hard time I'm having. Come on, somebody. I was envious of that foolish person because I saw his prosperity. For there are no bands in his death, but their strength is firm. Wow. They're not afraid of dying and meeting God. They're not worried about judgment. He's not worried about one day having to stand before the Lord and give an account. He's, he's, he's not afraid of anything. He's not afraid of dying. He said, my Lord, I'm standing around here seeing doctors every other week trying to stay healthy enough to keep living, and he don't even care. And here I am envious of him because his attitude is so carefree and mine is so anxious. He's afraid of nothing, and I'm afraid of everything. He doesn't dread anything, and I dread everything. Come on, somebody. And he said, I, I'm envious. I envious the foolish man because he's not worried about anything. They are not in trouble. Read verse 5. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Nothing bothers them. Now don't sit there and act like you don't know somebody like that. You probably work with them. I know me and Don plays golf with some of them just like that. They'll tell you, uh, preacher, I know that you folks have to limp around on that crutch about Jesus and all. Actually, there are aliens come here to this planet years ago and we're an experiment, and they come by and check on us every now and then. And you know these people say they get abducted, they get called up to a spaceship, and they test them and put them on a table, you know, and run all kind of tests on them. Then they, then they put them back where they was to come back later and check them out again sometime later and see how the experiment's going on. And you say, I'm limping around on a crutch. They sure fit that category of foolish, don't they? Envious of the foolish. Because they just seem to be 
carefree about everything and said, they don't have troubles like everybody else does. Well, let me tell you the truth, they do too. They just don't blab them to you and everybody else. Because Job said, man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. So they got troubles just like everybody else. You just don't know about it because they don't go around broadcasting it and telling everybody. So here these guys are. He says, they're not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued. That means sicknesses. Therefore the pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. Well, most fat folks I know don't see very well out of their eyes. But anyway, their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than their heart could wish. Are you seeing that? They have more than their heart could wish for. Now, I don't know many people like that. I'm certainly not married to one. Because, buddy, her heart wishes for a lot of things. She's already telling me what she wants for Christmas. And we got to go to... Stinson's and find her something pretty to, to get her for Christmas. Because she's a wisher. Hey, these, this guy he's describing is so prosperous. He said he has more than his heart could ever wish for. He's corrupt and speaks wickedly concerning oppression. And they speak loftily. Loftily means they talk down to everybody else. Which means they're arrogant. And they're condescending. Come on, somebody. And he said, I'm envious of these folks. Now he's describing how silly and how foolish that is to be envious of somebody like that. They have all that they want. They've got all that they hope for. They're corrupt. They, listen to this, they set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. Spurgeon used to say, doggish tongues and doggish barking used to chase the sheep back to the shepherd. His people run hither to him. They run back to him. These people don't run to God with their problems. They don't, they don't go to church to try to find answers. They don't, they don't try to ask somebody what God can do for them. They, they look at the heavens and they curse and they swear the heavens. They have no regard for God and no regard for his, his word or his house or anything of that nature. Therefore, his people return hither. And they say, how doth God know? And is their knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world and they increase in riches. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain. Look at that 13th verse. I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. Wow. Actually, he's looking back upon the day he got saved. And he said, why in the world have I done this? Have I believed in vain? You see, that's the problem with the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Because if you're not rich and driving a rich car and living in an expensive house, then you're not saved 
and you don't have the Spirit of God, and you don't have faith, and God doesn't love you. And that's a rotten lie out of the pit of hell. That is absolute heresy. And it's evil to tell people that. Yes, God blesses his people. Yes, he does. But he doesn't say to you that if you get saved, then money's going to hunt you down. And if you get saved, then you're going to be in perpetual good health for the rest of your life. He doesn't say that. In fact, he says right the opposite. He says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He says, with much tribulation shall ye enter into the kingdom of God. He says, straight is the gate, narrow is the way, and few there be that find it. It's, it's not this road that's lined with diamonds and with luxury. It is, it is a, a, a fight. It's a race. It's a wrestling match. It's an endurance. He that endureth unto the end, the same shall be saved. For all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Are you looking at that? He said, when I listened to myself talk, I was so embarrassed of what I said. Have you ever said something and immediately said, well, I wish I hadn't said that. Come on, about 10 nodded their head. The rest of you hypocrites sat there looking like that's never happened to you. You better own up to it and say, I probably did it at the breakfast table this morning. Yes, we all have said things that wish we hadn't said. Sometimes, don't you wish you could just reach out there in the air and, go, and get that back? And that's what Asaph was saying. Brother, he said, sometimes I let my mouth get in gear. And just run, run, run. Before my mind ever gets hold of that gear. And he said, when I listen to myself talk and listen to what I've said, it's too painful for me. It embarrasses me that I ever would say something like that. You know, sometimes I have to say that to the Lord. Lord, I'm embarrassed that I said something like that. Come on, every night when you get down, you pray that. When you, you do it generically. You say, Lord, if I've committed any sins today, you please forgive me. Lord, if there's anything in my heart that wouldn't let me go in that rapture. Now, Lord, you forgive me for that now. Sometimes you need to be more specific than that and say, God, I'm embarrassed at my conversation today. I said some things I shouldn't have said. And he, when he described himself, he said, that was too painful for me. It troubled me deeply, the NIV says. Troubled me so deeply. Too embarrassing. That condition of despondency. He was so down about his situation and about the way he found himself. He, he looked at himself and didn't like what he, what he looked at. And he said, I've got to do something about this. I've got, to, I've got to get rid of this. You know, Psalm 73 and 26 contains this truth. 
My flesh and my heart are failing. I'm discouraged. I'm despondent. I'm at my wit's end. And there comes the spiritual counterattack in that next phrase. And it's what you love to hear. But God. Can anybody say but God? But God. That great verse in Ephesians 2. We were lost having no hope without God in the world. But God. But God. We were on our way to a devil's hell, condemned to to an eternity, uh, uh, separated from God. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy with his great love, wherewith he loved us, even while we were dead in sin, quickened us together with Christ and raised us up together with Christ. But God, yes, sometimes I get disconsolate, but God. Yes, sometimes I'm despondent, but God. Sometimes I'm embarrassed. When I look in the mirror and look at myself, but God, but God, when you go to the house of the Lord, the word of the Lord is a mirror that the Bible said that we we look into. Psalm 19 and 7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, reviving the soul, repairing the soul. It's so important when you come to God's house that the word of God is preached because it will revive your soul. It will revive your spirit. It will repair the brokenness that is in your heart. All of these things, when he said, I was just just beset by it. Verse 17, he starts picking up. Look at what he said. But then, then... I went to the sanctuary of God. You know, that's exactly what most people don't do. Most people, when they get in trouble, or they have a a weak period in faith, or they're under some stress or some kind of strain concerning their soul or their heart, you start missing them out of church. Come on, nod your head. Give me a Presbyterian amen. There you go. That's good. Why in the world would we absent ourselves from the very thing that we need? Because you see, when we get to that weakened state, and we get to that point that we're despondent, and we're disappointed, and we're discouraged, then our enemy starts whispering things in our ear. Are you hearing, Pastor? I said he'll start speaking damaging things into your ears to try to keep you from doing the very thing you need to do. And that is go to the house of the Lord. When when Jacob had his great experience out there on the run from Esau, his brother, and he was lying on the ground and the Bible said he had a dream. And he saw a vision of what? I heard somebody way back yonder say a ladder. He saw a ladder. We call it Jacob's Ladder. Do you remember that old song we used to sing, Faith? We are climbing Jacob's Ladder. Doug act like he don't know that. He helped him write that song. (laughs) And we're going to the top. Don, you don't know, know Jacob's ladder? Brother Ford teach it to you. 
When he saw that ladder, Jason, he saw angels ascending and descending all up and down the ladder. And when he woke up the next morning, he said, how dreadful is this place and how terrible this place is. Now, the old English is a little bit awkward there. What he's saying is how awesome this place is. And he said, God, if you're going to meet with me and you're going to bless me and you're going to enter into a covenant with me, then I'm going to name this place. I've been using these rocks for a pillow and I'm going to make a pillar. I'm going to pile them up here and I'm going to take oil and anoint them. And I'm going to call this place from now on, this shall be called the house of God. Bethel, Bethel, the house of God. Where's your Bethel? Where's your Bethel? It may be a, a, a bedroom in the back of your house. That place where you found God. That place where you had that experience with God. That place where you came face to face with the saving grace of Jesus. That place where he changed your heart, changed your life, and made you a new creature in Christ Jesus. Where is your Bethel? Where's your place? It might have been, one old brother used to testify, and he said, said, I pulled up on those reins on old babe that day, and babe was a mule. And said, I pulled up on those reins on old babe and said, I walked out there, dealt down by that plow stock in the back 40 and said, that's where I gave my heart to God. His bet L was at that plow stock. You remember where that place was, where you first felt his presence, first felt the, the anointing, first felt the power. But the Bible said, and he departed. Why in the world would you depart? Because he was on the run. But he just had a covenant with God. But he evidently didn't believe it wholeheartedly because he kept running. And he went over to his mama's brother. Is that right, Brother Ford? To his mama's brother. Wasn't his name Laban? And it was in the land of Haran? Yeah. And had a daughter, and the Bible said her name was Leah. And the Bible said she was a tender-eyed girl. In other words, she was homely. But Rachel was pretty. And he loved Rachel. And he thought his father-in-law told him, she got, you got to work seven years for Rachel. Work seven years, and he brought out Tender eyes. He said, it wouldn't be right. She's my eldest. I can't give you her sister till we take care of tender eyes here. So he had to work seven more years. And he said, it seemed like the time just flew by because his love for her was so great. Hallelujah. After 14 years, he finally got Rachel. He is in business with his father-in-law with spotted cows and solid cows, and he found out his father-in-law was cheating him in business. Dinah, his sister, had gone off into another country over there, and his daughter, Jacob's daughter, gone off into another country and was 
attacked by a prince of that country, come back and reported, and her brothers all went over and killed the people of that country. And so here sits Jacob, and he's got all this trouble, a mess in business, a mess in his family, sons are murderers, a mess with his father-in-law, and he just sits down and he says, oh God, what am I going to do? And God said, arise and go back to Bethel. Go back to that place where I first appeared to you. Go back to that place where you first experienced that transformation, that covenant was made. Go back to that place where you had that transformation and became a patriarch, became a person of God, and you heard the covenant. And build you an altar there, and I will meet you there. You see, it's so important that we have a, a a, a Bethel, that we have a place of God. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, I was miserable with despondency until I went to the sanctuary and then I understood. Are you meaning to tell me, Pastor, that the reason I am so disconsolate and so despondent is I don't understand? You mean I've failed to understand something and that's the reason why I'm feeling this way? You mean that I, I'm going through all of this because I'm just not understanding right? You mean that when I come to God's house there is a revelation that will help me understand, that'll help me to appreciate what I've got? that'll help me feel like God loves me and God cares about me. I can hear a word that'll help me understand that I'm not like that foolish person. I don't need to envy him. I don't need to envy her. I don't need to look around at somebody else. I just need to look at me and say, God, help me understand, amen, that your goodness and your blessing and your prosperity is upon my life Maybe not in the way it is in theirs, but it is in my life because you have given me great and exceeding promises. One, you said you'd never leave me. You'd never forsake me. One, another one, you said you would always keep your hand upon me and you'd never take your hand off of me until you completed what you started in me. Wow. When I went to the house of God, then I understood, and I understood what I understood therein. I came to understand that riches and money and cars and houses and land is nothing compared to what God has for the people that serve Him that is awaiting a home in heaven. Then I understood. And I understood that I've got something they don't have. I understood that I've got a future with my heavenly Father 
that I've got a future that he's already taken care of, that I've got a, got a future. He's coming back to get me and he's going to carry me to a place he's prepared for me and so shall I ever be with the Lord. What a wonderful body I'm going to have. What a wonderful home I'm going to have. What a wonderful fellowship I'm going to have. What a wonderful future I've got. And they don't have that. But I've got that. They should be envious of me. <laughs> kind of like those Germans had those American soldiers surrounded and they were talking about one, I think the commanding officer got up and said, these Krauts ought to be uh, scared of us. They've got us surrounded and said they ought to be scared to death. Hey, when you're a Christian, everybody else ought to be wanting to be like you. It shouldn't be the other way around, you wanting to be like them. Well, sometimes, Pastor, it just kind of gets in some. Well, then you need to go to the house of the Lord. Go to the sanctuary, and then you'll understand. Then you'll understand. Was Jesus ever despondent? Is despondency a sin? No. Has its root in unbelief or disbelief? But it's okay to have feelings. It's okay. Not okay to doubt and worry and not trust God. But it's okay to feel it, the emotions that go with that situation. Jesus in Matthew chapter 26 verse 36. He's just left the supper. He's just told Judas what you've got to do, do it quickly. And now he's taken the disciples and he's gone to the other side of the Kidron and he's over on the other side in the Mount of Olives and he goes to a garden that is called Gethsemane. And I believe that Satan gathered every demon in his army to attack the mind and heart and soul of the Lord Jesus. Because if he did the purposeful plan of God, then Satan was done for. If Jesus did what he was sent to the world to do, then Satan was going to lose the battle for all of time. Do you remember in the temptation of Jesus when he was on the mount for the 40 days and the 40 nights that the Bible said after tempting him those three times with the food and with the temple and with the worship, the Bible said then that Satan left him. You ever read that? My Sunday school teachers are nodding their head. He left him. Why did the devil leave Jesus? It says, for another opportune time. In other words, he wasn't through tempting. He wasn't through doing his work to stop Jesus from being a propitiation for our sins. 
And I believe that he's summoned. I believe this very moment at Gethsemane, at the rock of agony, when his sweat became as great drops of blood, when he bore the sins of the whole world, Look at what it says. John 12, 27 says this. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Hmm. Matthew 36, then Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane and he said to the disciples, sit here while I go yonder and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and very troubled and then he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. Now can you imagine the despondency? The sorrow, my soul, read what it says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Wow. So there's no sin because we know Jesus did no sin, neither was there any guile found in his mouth. Yet he felt such deep, deep sorrow and such deep, deep despondency. The devil had come to him and said to him, can you imagine how this is going to hurt? Can you imagine this death? Can you imagine you're going to be put to such excruciating pain like you've never imagined? This is going to be really, really bad. And Jesus said, but my heart and my soul is troubled what shall I say? And listen to what he says. Father, save me from this hour. You mean it's all right to say, God, take this out of the way? You mean it's all right to say to the Lord, Father, I wish you'd remove this so that I wouldn't have to deal with this? You mean it's all right for us to say, God, I wish you'd take this problem, solve this problem, and get this out of the way because it is just causing me so much sorrow and so much despondency. It's okay to say, let this cup pass from me. As long as you follow it up with the sovereignty of God. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It's all right to say, God, take this away. It's all right to pray and say, God, please take this out of my life. I can't deal with this. It hurts too bad. As long as you follow it up with, nevertheless, not my will, thine be done. It's all right to pour out your heart to God. It's all right to tell him all about it. Unlike some of your neighbors who will tell you, I don't want to hear it. God will look you in the eye and say, I want to hear it. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. 
He's touched, the Bible said, with the feeling of your infirmities. He cares about how you feel. And you can tell him. And you can say to him, God, I wish you'd just take this out of the way. It hurts so bad. Could you just please solve this problem for me? As long as you follow it with, nevertheless, thy will be done. Because then you're trusting the sovereignty of God. So we learn then that Jesus says something to disciples. He says, let not your heart be troubled. John 14, 1 through 3. Don't let your heart be troubled. Well, I wish there was some adjustment. Do you know where the adjustment is? Wouldn't it be good, Philip, if we had a thermostat that we could go up and down on how much we thought we could take? Come on, somebody. Lord, this is too much. Let's take that and back that down just a little bit. Don't you wish there was a valve somewhere that we could kind of turn when life just gets unbearable? But there's not one, not on us, but there's one that he's got because he said, I will not allow you to be tempted above what you're able to bear, but will with every temptation make a way for your escape. So if I've got his promise that it, it ain't going to kill me, but with every temptation, he's going to make a way. Let not your heart be troubled. I hadn't had you do one time this whole sermon, so let's do it one so we won't do a sermon without it. Look at your neighbor and say, let not your heart be troubled. <laughs> let not your heart be troubled. Michael, let not your heart be troubled. Wow. As if I can control that? How can I control it? You believe in God. You believe in God. Believe also in me. And here's how you can let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. You believe in me. Here's the third reason why you can let not your heart be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there, you can be also. So don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me, and I'm coming back. I said, here's how you keep your heart from being troubled. You believe in God, you believe in Jesus, and he's coming back for you. Clap your hands for the glory of God. That's good stuff. So I learned something right here. 
John 14, 27. My peace I leave with you. Anybody got it? Jesus said, my peace I leave you. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. How do you handle a troubled heart? Pastor, you just come a little bit too late to tell me not to let it happen. It's already happened. What do I do about it? Let's do what Jesus did. Would you do what Jesus did? When Jesus was sorrowful, when Jesus was agonizing before the Lord, he did some things. Listen to what he He chose some close friends to be with him. He said, Peter, James, John, come on, let's go a little bit further. Go a little bit further. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Don't isolate yourself. Don't draw up in a shell. Don't quit answering the phone. Don't get somewhere where nobody can touch you. You need friends. Number two. Jesus opened his soul unto them. You need to have some folks that you know know the Lord and know the Word of God that love you, that will tell you the truth that you can open your soul up to. Then he said unto them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. I can imagine their mouths dropping wide open when their king said that to them. This one they call master that stopped funeral processions and raised the dead. This one that took five loaves and two fishes and fed 5,000. This king that stood on the bow of the boat and said, peace be still, and wind and waves obeyed him. And now they hear him say, I'm exceeding sorrowful unto death. Number three, he asked them to help him fight the battle. You need to ask some people to pray for you. Verse 38, second half says this, Remain here and watch with me. Ask your friends to fight the devil by your side. For he poured out his heart to the Father in prayer. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass. It's just fine to pray that that bombshell that just dropped in your life be taken away. It's all right. It's all right to say, Father, you're stronger than the enemy. You're greater in me than he that's in the world. Fifth thing and final one. Finally, he rested his soul in the sovereignty of the wisdom of God. If you'll do those five things, you can fix a heart that's troubled. And then that last part of that psalm, chapter 73, verse 22. So foolish was I. Have you ever looked back on yourself and said, my goodness, how foolish. When he went to the house of the Lord and he understood, then he looked at himself and he said, so foolish was I. And ignorant. Have you ever called yourself ignorant? I'm not talking about her calling you ignorant or him calling you ignorant. Have you ever called yourself ignorant? 
My mother used to call us boys Igmo. Well, you do something ignorant, you get called Igmo. And then she shortened it back, she called it Iggy. Come here to me, Iggy. Iggy, Igmo, ignorant. And sometimes she'd just say, Ig, Ig, come here, Ig. I'm itching up to my elbows to get a hold of you, Ig. Ignorant. <laughs> Have you ever looked at yourself and said, So foolish was I and ignorant. I was a beast before thee. I was like somebody that wasn't disciplined or had anything to control how I was. Nevertheless, anybody got a nevertheless? Nevertheless, I was ignorant, I was foolish, but nevertheless, nevertheless, I am continually with you, God. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. God's cure for my ignorance and my foolishness is he holds me by his right hand. That's what my mama used to do for me when I was ignorant. I found myself walking beside her and she had a hold of my hand. Was usually on the way outside church to that hickory bush that was outside. But she was holding my right hand. God says the cure for your disconsolate spirit and for your despondency is I'm holding your hand. And Faye remembers that song real well too, don't you, Faye? Jesus, hold my hand, I need thee every hour. Through this pilgrim land, protect me by thy power. Hear my feeble plea, O Lord, look down on me. When I kneel in prayer, I hope to meet you there. Blessed Jesus, hold my hand. And that's exactly what he does. Don't ever let go of his hand. And he'll take care of your sorrows. Stand with me, please, all over the building. It's Veterans Day here at Harvest. Amen. And we have a tradition here at Harvest. We all honor our veterans. So this morning, we'd like for our veterans, when the anthem of your particular service branch is played, I'd like for you to come up front and let us all say thanks to you for serving in the military and being a protector of this great country. If you'll start that up there, Adam, when you hear your theme for your service branch, you just step out and come right down here, okay? Army. Navy. Any Navy? Yeah, here comes David. What about this? 
I didn't know you was Navy. Navy man. Oh, yeah. Come on, Roger. God bless you, buddy. Amen. Bless you, Brother Bumpers. Let's give all these guys a real good hand today. Amen. We're so proud that our country has designated a day to honor such men and women as, as you. We thank you for your sacrifice and thank you for the way that you have stood up, been counted, served in the armed forces of this country to protect a free nation. And we love and appreciate you so very much. Thank you so much for your sacrifice and your, your service to this country. God bless you and God ever be with you is our prayer. I think it would be good as we dismiss this morning to come around and shake hands with these guys and tell them how much we thank God for them and thank them for doing what they did for our country. Amen.